Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the First Universalist Unitarian Church. My name is Carl Drake, and I am a member of this church. I want to extend a special welcome to any visitors joining us this morning. Since 1858, UU Wausau has served as a vital voice for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people just as you are, regardless of age, sexual orientation, ethnicity, or economic situation. Wherever you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. Between Sundays, we'd love to have you at one of our classes or events. So be sure to subscribe to the church's newsletter and follow us on Facebook or Instagram for updates. I have a few special announcements today. <coughs> our June potluck will be held after the service next Sunday, June 4th. We do not have an official group sponsoring the potluck at this time, but we still want to move forward with this event of Food, Fun, and Fellowship. Please let Cheryl Hep know if you were able to help with the setup before the event or clean up afterwards. Next Saturday, June 3rd, UU Wausau will be hosting a booth at the River District's Pride Fest, and we need help setting up our booth, staffing the booth during the event, and taking down the booth. Contact Jess if you would like more details and to sign up. Blessings for bridging. Next Sunday is also our annual bridging service. As a part of our gift for our bridging senior high youth, we include messages of hope, words of encouragement, and blessings from the congregation. See the weekly email for the link to add your blessing in our word cloud or contact Jess. As we begin our worship together, please let us take a moment to extend peace and blessing to one another. Please rise and greet your neighbors, if you are able. Okay, that's enough happiness. <laughs> Dear friends, let us gather our hearts and minds for worship. Please join me in reciting the chalice lighting. The words are printed in your order of service. <clears throat> we light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. Please rise in body or spirit for our opening hymn, number 159.
If you would, please stay standing for our affirmation. You'll find the words in your bulletin. Love is the doctrine of this church. The quest of truth is its sacrament, and service is its prayer. To dwell together in peace, to seek knowledge and freedom, to serve human need, to the end that all souls shall grow into harmony with the divine. Thus do we covenant with each other in our doxology. we go. This morning our story is about how the red poppies became symbols for remembering soldiers and the woman behind it. It is titled The Poppy Lady by Barbara Elizabeth Walsh and the paintings are by Lane Johnson. Two notes, the book mostly takes place during World War I and it does contain war imagery and language. And for our purpose this morning, I've tailored the story down a little bit, but if anyone would like to see the full text, you're welcome to browse the book after service. Our story begins with a little background about the poppy lady, as she is affectionately nicknamed Moena Bell Michael. She lived in Good Hope, Georgia, in the years following the Civil War. And between the war and drought, Good Hope did not have a lot of money, so much so they couldn't afford to pay a teacher to come teach in the town. So Moena, some of her siblings, and a few of the local children started their own school. Her favorite motto was, whatsoever your hand find to do, do it with all your might. Then in March of 1917, German U-boats sank another American ship, and the nation was outraged. Would the president call for war, and would Congress agree? Moena Bell Michael prayed not. She had been touring Europe when the war first broke out in the summer of 1914. But now, bombs, craters, trenches, barbed wire barriers, and battlefields covered the beautiful countryside, visions that still made her shudder. In April 1917, the paper wheeled his bicycle across the University of Georgia's Norman's normal school, slamming on his brakes when he got to Moena. The thundering headline read, Wilson asking for war. Moena slowly climbed to the top of the dormitory steps and held out the paper for all to see. Moena knew what war would mean to the college girls. She was their teacher and their foster mom. Moena promised she would let them know as soon as the president and Congress reached a decision. All night, Moena called the Athens banner. Each time, she was told to be patient. When the news broke, an extra special edition would be sent to the college and delivered to Moena's hands. But sleep was out of the question. On campus, Moena looked to the stars and moon, bright in the clear springtime sky, and breathed in the scent of Cape Jasmine blossoms. She thought of the boys at the university, and she offered all to God, if only he would spare them. 
She thought about the boys throughout the country, and if only she could take their place. Before dawn, the addition finally arrived, and America was going to war. Moina vowed to do everything she could for the soldiers and to remember them. Moina knitted socks and sweaters, rolled bandages for the Red Cross, and when enlisted friends and students came to say goodbye, she gave them a little remembrance to take overseas. But Moina still wanted to do more. She delivered books and magazines and candy to the campus nearby. She and friends invited soldiers home for dinner. And it was time for them to leave. Moina went to the train station to see them off. But Moina needed to do even more. To become a canteen worker at the YMCA and to help soldiers overseas seem perfect. She could listen about home and family and serve food to men on leave. And in 1918, her appointment was approved. 49-year-old Moina headed to New York City and the training program at the Y headquarters at Columbia University. She successfully completed the course, but was told she was too old to go overseas. But Moina refused to give up. But what could she do now? Help the soldiers before they left for war. Moina set up a desk in the basement of Columbia's Hamilton Hall, where soldiers and sailors and Marines and secretaries came during their free time. But as winter approached, the large room turned gray and gloomy. But Moina knew what to do. With her small salary, she brought fresh flowers and placed them throughout the room. More soldiers came to read and write, and others came to spend time with family and friends and sweethearts. And Moina was happy to look at photographs, listen to letters, and share the latest hometown news. But she needed to do even more. One Saturday morning, a soldier left a magazine at her desk, and Moina turned to a marked page to find We Shall Not Sleep by Lieutenant Colonel John McRae, who was a Canadian physician. She had read the poem many times, but she decided to read it again, touched by McRae's tribute to the soldiers he could not save on the battlefields in Flanders. The poem was most strikingly illustrated in color. It was a battlefield covered in white crosses and bright red poppies. There were no names on the crosses, no memory of who rested beneath the poppies, and Moina knew what she had to do. She read the last verse slowly. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands we throw. The torch be yours to hold high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep through poppies grow in Flander fields. And she thought about the friends and students and soldiers at the Y, and she knew she could never forget them. We had turned over an envelope and wrote down a pledge, ending with a promise. And now the torch and poppy red we wear in honor of our dead. Fear not that ye have died and not. We'll teach the lesson that ye wrought in Flanders fields. Moina shared both poems with three soldiers who shared them with other men. And soon Moina was surrounded by people who wanted poppies of their own to honor their friends. And Moina knew what to do. Moina went poppy hunting, and at last, in Wanamaker's department store, she found one large and 24 small red silk poppies. Moina pinned one to her collar and hurried back to the, excuse me, the Y. Moina placed the red poppy in the vase and on her desk, excuse me, on her desk, and handed out 23 smaller ones to those leaving soon for France. She watched as they pinned them on their uniforms, and still, Moina, excuse me, Moina needed to do even more. She would not stop until every American wore a poppy to remember soldiers always. 
And she didn't stop. Two days after Moina bought the poppies, World War I ended, and she went back to teaching at the University of Georgia, specifically teaching classes for disabled veterans. Many were unable to work, and Moina realized once again she must do something. So she spent every spare moment and all the money she could save urging groups to adopt Flanders Fields Memorial poppies to honor and support veterans. And with her persistence, several national and international organizations adopted the poppy as their memorial flower. People donated nickels and pennies and dimes in exchange for a poppy, and millions of dollars have been raised for veterans, widows, and children. And that is our story for today. We are worshiping as a community of all ages, so I invite you to join in blessing those gathered here and those gathered online with May Peace Surround You. The mission and ministry of UU Wausau is made possible by the generous support of its friends and members. Rather than pass a plate at this time, we've placed an offering basket in the back of the sanctuary for you to drop a gift in. You can also stop by our website, uuwausau.org, to make a one-time or recurring gift with your credit or debit card. Recurring means more than once, <laughs> maybe every Sunday. Thank you for your support.
I'd like to invite everyone to join me in the spirit of prayer and meditation. I invite you to start by putting your feet flat on the ground. If you're comfortable closing your eyes, go ahead and close them. Draw your attention to the top of your head and slowly move down to your cheeks and your jaw and let the tension out. Relax your throat. Take a full breath into your stomach and let the tension out of your shoulders. Take another breath deep down into your stomach and slowly out. Let us pray. As our gratitude is greater than we can ever express, so too is our awareness of the broken places in our world. Far too many people live in daily pain. Too many wars spread hatred and fear. Too many rivers carry pollution to the sea. Holy, burning spirit of life, pour out your love among us and through us as we pray in silence for the healing of the world. Friends, I invite you to call into your mind all the joys and sorrows in your lives and let us meditate on them in silence together now. Amen. Please stay seated for our prayer hymn, Let There Be Peace on Earth.
So for the past few weeks, I've been reading through the Library of America, the Library of America's collection entitled Reporting World War II. It's two volumes long, 1,600 pages, and what it does is it gathers a collection of the journalism that was published in major publications in the United States throughout all of World War II, beginning in 1938 and ending in 1946. It's wonderful, I haven't read it all. Um, uh, but there is a journalist in there who I've sort of uh, developed quite a fondness for. His name is Ernie Pyle. Anybody know Ernie Pyle? Yeah, some, not, some heads nodding. For those of you who don't know Ernie Pyle, Ernie Pyle was a great uh, and storied war journalist. He died uh, in Japan in 1945, if memory serves me right. He was at the, stor the storming of Normandy less than 24 hours after, after it happened, and his account of that is, is terrifying and vivid. Um, he was the preferred journalist of Eleanor Roosevelt. She quoted him all the time in her weekly newspaper articles, and he was absolutely the favorite journalist of American soldiers who felt that he told the story of the war from a human perspective. He talked about life and death and war and longing. I'm gonna to read to you something that he wrote in France in 1944. He went from Normandy and he went into the interior of France and he sat down underneath an apple tree and he wrote what I'm about to read to you. At this point in the war, bear in mind that the Nazis were all but beaten. Um, it was just an inevitability that the war would soon end. It's just wars don't end like a book. They're complicated. And so, particularly the last paragraph here, piles, is the one that I want to focus in on. But I'm going to give you a bit of background because I think it's just that good. So this is Ernie Pyle from Under an Apple Tree in France in 1944. The end of one war is a great fetter broken from around our lives, but there is still another to be broken. The Pacific War may yet be long and bloody, nobody can foresee, but it would be disastrous to approach it with easy hopes. Our next few months at home will be torn between the new spiritual freedom of half peace and the old grinding blur of half war. It will be a confusing period for us. Thousands of our men will soon be returning to you. They have been gone a long time, and they have seen and done and felt things you cannot know. They will be changed. They will have to learn how to adjust themselves to peace. Last night we had a violent electrical storm around our countryside. The storm was half over before we realized that the flashes and the crashings around us were not artillery, but plain, old-fashioned thunder and lightning. It will be odd to hear only thunder again. You must remember that such little things that are in our souls and will take time. And all of us together will have to learn how to reassemble our broken world into a pattern so firm and so fair that another great war cannot soon be possible. To tell the simple truth, most of us over in France don't pretend to know the right answer. 
Submersion in war does not necessarily qualify a man to be the master of peace. All we can do is fumble and try once more. Try out of the memory of our anguish and be as tolerant with each other as we can. Therein ends our reading. I had this friend of mine who really liked to draw monsters. What was amazing about this was that my friend who liked to draw monsters was a major scaredy cat. I remember one sleepover, he even had his mom pick him up because he couldn't handle the puny werewolf thriller, Silver Bullet. Have you ever seen that, the adaptation of the Stephen King? Anyways, he couldn't even handle Silver Bullet, and so he called his mom and had him pick him up at like 10 o'clock at night. But this dude was amazing at drawing monsters. And in the fourth grade, we had one of those fairs, you know those fairs where they sell books, and uh, when I was a kid, Yikes pencils were really popular. Any Yikes fans in here? My wife, yes, we were all about the Yikes. Yikes pencils and erasers, and books and all that sort of stuff. Well, this friend of mine in one of these fourth grade book fairs, he set his sights on a how-to book 
on learning how to draw monsters. Like, I'm talking creatures from black lagoons, fangy aliens, blobs that had like 10,000 udders, like the good stuff. And my friend would draw these amazing, disgusting creatures, and then he would add these hilarious storylines, and he would entertain uh, me and my friends, and he would gross us out at the same time. And one day after school, as we did back in those days, I went home with my friend, and his mom asked to see what he had got at the book fair, right? What did he spend this money on? So he reached into his backpack, and he pulled out his monster book and all of his drawings. And his mom, you know, remember how moms would lick their finger before they turn pages? Anybody's mom do that? It's disgusting. My mom does it too. But anyways, mom would reached into the backpack and licked her finger and started thumbing the pages. And after a few pages, she turned to this son, my friend, or my, this friend of mine, and she said, why don't you draw things people actually want to look at? And handed him, <laughs> Jess goes, oh. <laughs> and he didn't say anything to this, but I could tell that my friend was absolutely devastated. I'm telling this story because I think every parent and every child learn at some point, and often we learn more than once, but something will be said to us or we'll say something to someone that cuts deep. Something that's so painful because what's said is so certain and it's so direct that it almost feels as though someone is speaking directly to that fragile part of your soul. You know, that part of you that's the most tender you that just wants to be seen and liked. But, of seeing, but instead of seeing that thing in you that someone tells you, they wish it was different. And I think moments like this, they tend to imprint in us pretty deep. I was thinking about times like this, times when even the people we love break our hearts, and often without knowing it, or even meaning to. It's been on my mind because I've been chatting with this couple on Zoom whose wedding I'm gonna officiate later this summer. And at some point, every couple whose wedding I officiate, I tell them some version of this advice. I'll give you this advice now. At some point into your marriage, you're going to realize that the wonderful person you married is actually kind of selfish. <laughs> I love my wife, she's here. <laughs> <laughs> but you need to know that just as soon as that, cri that thought creeps into your mind for the first time, you can be certain that that thought has already crept into theirs. The funny thing about relationships is that one of the ways you get what you want is actually to be self-sacrificial. Like if you really want someone to pay more attention to you, here's my prescription try paying more attention to them. If you really like getting back rubs, try giving more back rubs. If you want your kids to work harder in school, you should model for them what it looks like to work hard, what resilience looks like. But thankfully, one of the bits about life that's actually within our control, because there are all sorts of things in life that are beyond our control, one of the things that is beyond, that is within our control, rather, is the ability to recognize our selfishness, the ability to recognize our self-centeredness, and to act on them. It's important to remember that love isn't just an emotion. Love is also an action. 
Love is something we act on. We're not to live just for ourselves. We're also meant to live for others. And knowing this and saying it from a pulpit don't make it easy. In fact, I think that knowing it actually makes it just a little bit harder because you often catch yourself being a dummy more often than you would. But it's the most important aspect in a marriage, in parenting, in any meaningful companionship. If I were going to summarize what I'm trying to say, I'd put it like this. In order to gain your life, you have to lose your life. And right now it's peak wedding and graduation season, if you didn't know. So conversations about human purpose are everywhere. Around the nation, people are getting and giving advice about how to live, where to direct your passion, how to be adaptable. A few days back, I was reading the New York Times and they ran an article entitled, quote, the most common graduation advice tends to backfire. Did you get that? The most common graduation advice tends to backfire. So the University of Washington recently conducted and concluded two surveys, and get this, it shows that when students are encouraged by advisors to, quote, follow your passions, they often end up picking jobs that have nothing to do with their passions And instead, they pick jobs that track right along with traditional gendered stereotyped lines that see more men continue to move into high-paying tech and science jobs and women continue to move into low-paying, caring professions. In other words, if these researchers are right, telling kids to follow your passion actually leads them to limit their choices. One of the interesting things about this is that in countries like Malaysia and Kuwait that have much, much smaller disparities in the workplace, in those countries what kids are encouraged to do is to actually pick jobs based on how much money would you like to make? What is security to you and what does it mean? How do you want to support your family? These are the kinds of questions kids get. And what the researchers hope students keep in mind is this. Passion is far more malleable and subject to outside influence than you might think. Now, this probably isn't going to come as a shock, but I have a few gripes with this study. Um, I think the researchers, in my opinion, have a not-so-hidden bias. I actually think the researchers in their own way are actually conforming to their own societal expectations. But I'm not going to get up here and critique this research paper. You read it for yourself. But I am going to give you what I think is a very constructive gripe. Don't get me wrong. Even though I have gripes with this, I think that this is a fascinating study. I'm glad that the University of Washington put it out there. And I'm certainly not going to be the first person to point out that the advice to follow your passion can be counterproductive for some people. I also think the advice to follow your passion can potentially be far too big of a burden to throw around the neck of an 18-year-old or a 22-year-old. I will speak for myself. I was passionate about a lot of things from the ages of 18 to 22, and my mother is very thankful that I didn't stick with many of them for very long. 
But I don't think that it's helpful that the researcher's primary takeaway is to suggest that we sort of stop focusing on passion, even if it's a flimsy guide for the workplace. For instance, why not encourage kids to hold passion lightly, knowing that growing up comes with a lot of change? I ask this because I'm not convinced telling kids to follow their passion is the main problem. I sometimes wonder if the constant message to achieve is what holds people back. Now, many of you know this, but I've spent the last six years mentoring school kids in some of Wausau's schools. And it's not uncommon for me to hear stories about teachers who talk about bad grades and choices as if they are the end of the world. Now, don't get me wrong. I have mega respect for educators. I am married to a particularly hardworking educator. I know it's a tough gig. I have seen the sleepless nights. I have seen the worry. I've seen the pay stubs. It's not great. But why any teacher would think they can inspire a kid to try harder by raking them over the coals is beyond me. In my experience, whenever you lean hard on a kid, what do they do? They just do what we do. We just kind of shut down or we come out fighting, right? And so the developmental psychologist Allison Goptik says, I'm going to quote her, if we taught our kids softball the way we teach them science, they would hate softball as much as they hate science. But if we taught them science as we teach them softball, by practice and absorption, they might end up loving both. Now, I think the distinction being drawn here by Gopnik is between achievement on the one hand and accomplishment on the other. Now, achievement is something imposed and granted from the outside. I want you to take work for example. In work, whenever you achieve one task, what is the reward? A brand new task. That's how work goes. If you're lucky, you might get a bonus or maybe just a pat on the back. Whereas an accomplish, in Gopnik's brother Adam's words, is, quote, the end point of an engulfing activity that we have chosen, whose reward is the sudden fulfillment, the sense of happiness that rises uniquely from the absorption in a thing outside of ourselves. Accomplishment is to follow your passion, is what this development psychologist is actually saying to find yourself connected to something beyond you. Notice the key idea here, enjoyment in the thing itself. A good word here might actually be transcendence. Now I realize I'm walking on dicey waters with you, use, but I've got a few more pages to go, hang on. So Gopnik muses on the fact that very often people feel accomplished and happy when they do things they enjoy, even if they're bad, at what they're doing. How many of you enjoy doing something that you're objectively bad at? Yeah, I'll speak for myself. So Gopnik talks about, first I'll talk about Gopnik a little more. Gopnik, he talks about learning how to play the guitar as a boy. He would trap himself in his room, he would put on Beatles records, and he would like press the chords till his like fingers hurt so bad from his $40 Sears guitar trying to learn these Beatles songs. And so, he was mediocre at best, he admits. 
And yet when he played, what he describes is this feeling of getting lost in the activity. And once the activity was over, he would emerge inspired and refreshed and joyful. I could say the same thing about myself when it comes to watercolors. I am terrible at watercoloring. Any preschooler who finger paints is better than my watercoloring, and yet when I make time to do it, I always end up losing myself in the discovery. And I can say the same thing as I've gotten older and gotten into gardening with my wife, learning how to cook, being in the kitchen, whenever I go bird watching. These are some of the things I don't do well, but I love. What Gopnik calls this is a beautiful paradox. He writes, quote, Indeed, the beautiful paradox is that pursuing things we may do poorly can produce the sense of, of absorption, which is all that happiness is. Did you get that? Happiness is being absorbed. It's disappearing into an activity. It's transcendence. Perhaps the issue with telling children to pursue their passion is that our culture doesn't really care about happiness or transcendence unless there's a dollar value attached to it. And perhaps it doesn't care about happiness because there's a not-so-hidden agenda that wants you to believe that if you're not first, you're a loser. That you have to be achieving always, climbing ladders. You have to be unique and stand out, but you also have to fit in at the exact same time. Maybe what we need to do is get better at telling kids it's normal to be better at some things and not others. And it's okay to enjoy something just for the sake of doing it. After all, this is precisely the advice that I give to married couples. You're going to be bad at selflessness, but you've got to keep doing it. If you enjoy loving this person, and if this person makes you happy and you make them happy, try and lose yourself by putting their gripes in front of yours. If you enjoy having this person in your life, be the one who makes the calls rather than just receives them. I think that this advice is in essence about one thing. It's about focus. I want you to keep the word focus in mind as we move to a closing. I'm sure some of you read, like I did, that last week the Reverend Timothy Keller died after a long illness with cancer. The Times described Keller like this. I got a real kick out of it. Maybe you won't, but this is what the Times said about Keller in their opening paragraph to his obituary quote. The Reverend Dr. Timothy Keller a best-selling author and theorist of Christianity who performed a modern miracle of his own, establishing a theologically orthodox church in Manhattan that attracted thousands of young professional followers. I'm glad I'm the only one who thought that's funny, but anyways, okay. I've been deeply influenced by Keller's thought for years and years. But even more than Keller's ideas, what he did is he would minister to me through his presence and his living. In this interview that he gave towards the end of his life with the Anglican priest, Tish Warren, she asked Keller this question. Tim, how has cancer and this encounter with your own mortality 
changed how you see your life and how you see death. And this is Keller's response. On an emotional level, we really do deny the fact that we're mortal and our time is limited. The day after my diagnosis, one of the words I put down in my journal was focus. What are the most important things for you to be spending your time doing? Because I had not been focused. The second change was that you realize that there's one sense in which if you believe in God, it turns into a mental abstraction. You believe with your head. I came to realize that the experiential side of my faith really needed to strengthen or I was not going to be able to handle this. And so when Warren asked Keller what, what he spends his days focusing on, he lists, of course, his wife, his children, his grandchildren. But the last thing he says doesn't have anything to do with being married or a parent. Keller, Keller says, and I quote, the last thing is I'm trying to encourage people. I want to be an encourager. What I take Keller to mean is that we live in a world overflowing with difficulty. In the words of the philosopher Thomas Hobbes, life is nasty and brutish and short. And the sharp edge of this reality it's the stuff of Shakespeare. It's the stuff of the television masterpiece Succession, final episode airing tonight, of Taylor Swift's last album. But the hard work of being human is the stuff of wisdom that aches across the ages. Even the world's greatest preachers and prophets, they leave the world remarkably like the way they found it. But what unifies the greatest prophets is their love for the world and the happiness they find in it. Do you read the history books? And after Jesus Christ died, the Romans kept on running the show. After Martin Luther King Jr. died, racism still existed. Poor people kept getting trampled on, and wars kept being waged. But what Christ and King changed were imaginations. Their life and living, it pointed to a Holy Spirit that allows people like you and allows people like me to remember, to imagine, to encourage, to preserve, and to carry on. To carry all that is true, to carry all that is noble, all that is just and pure and lovable and gracious. And we do this in a seedy, shabby world, dumbed down and tuned out. As people of faith, we are called to fill our thoughts with these things and to encourage others to do the same. Because what it means to be a person of faith is to be a changed person in a seemingly changeless world. To be selfless, to give ourselves so that others can find themselves, to help shoulder burdens, to be encouragers. Some of you might remember the existentialist philosopher Albert Camus. And what he says in one of his books is that every day he would wake up and he would ask himself, should I go on living? 
Now, when I was a, a freshman philosophy major in college, I thought this was like the deepest question you could ask yourself. But today I find the question sort of silly. Because for me, the question is not whether, it's how. Having witnessed courage and repentance and redemption even, I tend to recoil these days when people tell me that life is absurd. Because of the meaning we glean from life, it comes from everywhere, especially all those in-between moments, when we surprise others and ourselves when we rise to a difficult occasion, when a stubborn man finally says he's sorry, when a frightened, soon-to-be widow tells her husband to let go. Because meaning illuminates the darkness as well as the light. On a final note, after a decade now of pastoral counseling and twice that long of personal failures and success, I've come to believe that we are what we love. If we love too deeply in something too small, our love will destroy us. If we only love in little ways, even if the object is as big as God, that love will never be enough. And so the question remains, what gives our life meaning? And I'll give you my short list. It's kindness, it's forgiveness, it's generosity, encouragement, joy, getting lost in a moment. And above all, it's love, love given and received. Amen. I invite you to rise in body or spirit for the closing hymn printed as an insert, America the Beautiful.
invite you to reach out and take the hand of someone you came with this morning or someone nearby. If you're here alone, reach out with your heart. May the truth that sets us free and the hope that never dies and the love that casts out fear lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away. Please have a seat.